Hey guys, this is John from American Defense Skinheads again with uh, episode one of Book and Rifle. The uh, the uh, previous two episodes actually uh, Anchor finally deleted them. I, I was being a little too blatant, so I guess it's uh, you know no surprise exactly that uh, they didn't let me continue. But um, I'm going to uh, start over again. Because they also deleted my recordings, so um, and I'm I'm gonna use Anchor this platform until they kick me off again, and then I'm gonna try a new one. Just so you guys know. Um, also, if any of you are interested in getting in contact with us, American Defense Skinheads, we have an email open for that. Uh, it's National Ascension at protonmail.com. N-A-T-I-O-N-A-L-A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N at protonmail.com. So, all right. Anyway, here we go. Uh, what I'm going to do also right here is uh, I'm just going to catch up on uh, where we – up until where we left off in this first uh, episode. And then uh, the second one will just be continuing like I was prior to uh, – the uh, deletion. All right, so here we go again. Uh, introduction. In 1940, a young student... Oh, introduction to White Power by George Lincoln Rockwell. Introduction. In 1940, a young student at Brown University left his studies to join the Navy to fight Adolf Hitler. He later explained his feelings at the time in these words. When the propaganda about Hitler began to be pushed on us in larger and larger doses, I swallowed it. I grew to hate this vicious monster, Hitler, as much as anybody in the country. It became obvious that we would have to get into the war to stop this horrible ogre who planned to conquer America. Eighteen years later, in 1958, the same person, standing solemnly before a candlelit swastika banner in a darkened corner of his Arlington, Virginia home, made a momentous decision to devote his life to the cause of Adolf Hitler. Perhaps no human transformation has ever been more remarkable or fraught with greater significance since the amazing conversion of the Apostle Paul as he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the early Christians. Here was a man who, as a Navy fighter pilot and highly decorated commander of three naval squadrons, had lent his body and soul to the destruction of Adolf Hitler and his followers in World War II, only to become the most fervent follower of the leader himself. The man was Lincoln Rockwell. And in many ways, his role is analogous to that of the great apostle of the church. If Adolf Hitler stands as the author of National Socialism, then Commander Rockwell is certainly the St. Paul of the New Aryan Creed. For apart from their remarkable conversions, there are certain other broad parallels between the two men. They both embraced the unpopular cause of someone who was hated and regarded as a failure in his own time. They both took a new doctrine out of the local geographic and ethnic context of its founder and spread it with missionary zeal around the civilized world of their time. They were both ostracized and persecuted by the authorities as well as the unconverted masses of their time. Ultimately, they both suffered martyrdom. And just as Christianity, for example, might have died out as an obscure Middle Eastern sect following the crucifixion of its founder had it not been for St. Paul, so National Socialism might have been a little more than a passing German phenomenon had it not been for a Lincoln Rockwell. 
But by defiantly raising the swastika banner out of the ruins and ashes of World War II, this great disciple of Adolf Hitler succeeded in turning defeat into victory. That which the Jews and their allies thought they had forever destroyed, he was miraculously able to revive, carrying the immortal race-saving message of National Socialism to erring men everywhere. For it was Lincoln Rockwell who, in those difficult years after 1945, was the first to grasp the real meaning and significance of Adolf Hitler's teachings, and to recognize and proclaim his true greatness as no other man was capable of doing. With unique insight, Commander Rockwell saw in National Socialism something that was more than German, something that was in fact an expression of the soul of all white Aryan mankind. He realized that just as 2,000 years ago Christ had announced the doctrine of personal salvation, so Adolf Hitler had proclaimed a message of racial salvation in, his own, in our own time. He declared his, his religious-like belief with these words, quote, We believe that Adolf Hitler was the gift of an inscrutable providence to a world on the brink of a Jewish Bolshevik catastrophe, and that only the blazing spirit of this heroic man can give us the strength and inspiration to rise, like the early Christians, for the depths of persecution and hatred, to bring the world a new birth, radiant idealism, realistic peace, international order, and social justice for all men. End quote. Perhaps the greatest single factor which brought about the incredible transformation of Lincoln Brockwell was the profound realization that everything he had fought for, or thought he had been fighting for, in World War II was betrayed. He had been told, for example, that we had gone to war to save such countries as, as Poland and Czechoslovakia. But when he asked himself who had these countries afterwards, he saw that he had been deceived. Like thousands of his fellow ex-servicemen, Commander Rockwell came to the sobering conclusion that the United States had fought, had fought on the wrong side in the Second World War. Instead of fighting as allies of the godless Soviet hordes to make the world safe for communism, we should have been fighting alongside our white German brothers and sisters to remove the Bolshevik cancer from the face of the earth. Being a man of action, Lincoln Rockwell promptly decided to act upon his convictions. After considering various conservative and right-wing options, he arrived at the fundamental conclusion that it was not from a lack of ideas that our race was perishing, but rather from a lack of spirit. For it was this lack of spirit, especially of moral courage, which prevented an appreciation and acceptance on the great on the one great race-saving idea already proclaimed by Adolf Hitler. So Commander Rockwell went ahead and formed the American Nazi Party later changing its name to that of the National Socialist White People's Party. As the battle cry of the revived National Socialist movement, he adopted the slogan, White man, stand up and fight. And to attract the kind of fighters he wanted, he held up the swastika banner and pointed the way to victory with a simple declaration of faith. In this sign, you shall conquer. Inevitably, Commander Rockwell's efforts earned him the fear and hatred of the worst enemies of our race. He was attacked, denounced, and vilified by every agency of an anti-white system. Not only did he survive, however, but with each new attack he attracted more and more recruits to the National Socialist cause. Alarmed, his opponents resorted to more sinister forms of attack. 
beatings, bombings, jails, and legal frame-ups. When he again demonstrated that none of these attempts could halt him, that they in fact contributed to his growing success, only one way remained by which he could be stopped. On August 25, 1967, Lincoln Rockwell was struck down by a bullet of a cowardly assassin. America lost its greatest son, the white race its greatest champion since Adolf Hitler. With an uncanny premonition, Commander Rockwell had uttered these prophetic words at the very beginning of his struggle. Quote, I knew that I would not live to see the victory which I would make possible, but I would not die before I had made that victory certain. End quote. As much as his enemies had hoped, the fatal shot which ended the earthly mission of Commander Rockwell did not destroy the immortal cause for which he fought. For he had built a movement capable of superseding his own human existence, a movement which is now in the process of securing that great victory which he foretold. Just before he was killed, Commander Rockwell made one last contribution to the struggle of his people. On the morning of his death, he completed the manuscript of a new book. It was to be the concluding act of his life's work, a final testament and appeal to the Aryan world. He called it White Power. That was by Matt Cole, commander of New Order, the successful the successor organization to the National Socialist White People's Party in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, August 6, 1996. All right, on we go. Chapter 1, Death Rattle. Sitting in the darkened theater, you are at first conscious of the audience coughing and whispering. Then there is the rustling noise of the certain of the curtain going up. A very silent noise, but you can hear it. The stage is pitch black. A powerful spotlight stabs into the darkness. It reveals a live chicken crucified on a miniature cross. You hear the audience gasp almost in unison. Then a young girl in leotards comes out, slashes the throat of the chicken, unties its wings and legs from the cross, and lets it run around the stage with its blood spurting until it, all, it falls dead. The stage lights up. The girl takes off her leotards and picks up a large doll. The girl takes off. Howling and giggling, she twists the arms and legs off the doll. Then she lies down naked, and a huge male comes out with the razor and shaves the white girl's private parts. They get into a burlap bag and, standing up, engage in sexual intercourse. Finally, the girl emerges from the bag and her naked flesh is rubbed all over with wet spaghetti. You have just been to a performance of the new theater, a happening, a classic example of the way Shakespeare has been improved by Jean-Jacques Lebel, the producer of The Above Nightmare. About to be outdone by whites, the Negro race is doing its share to create the same sort of new theater. Time magazine reports that Leroy Jones, the Negro playwright, puts on a play appropriately called The Toilet. As the curtain goes up, we see a white boy being held with his head in a urinal by a Negro, while other Negroes actually urinate on the white boy on stage. According to Leroy's play, the white boy has been trying to get the Negroes to engage in homosexual acts with him. The Negroes are chastising him by beating him up, stuffing his head in the urinal, and actually urinating on his face. Not only is this play actually staged without public protest, but U.S. taxpayers subsidize this degeneracy with $40,000 in federal funds. 
In Berkeley, California, the newspaper at the University of California advertises naked sex orgies of the Sexual Freedom League. There are advertisements such as Slave Once Master, in which masochists want sadists to chain and beat them. These degenerates now brazenly push for naked sex and homosexuality in public. The program states, We would rather see a sex organ in the hands of a child than a war toy. They do not specify whose sex organ. This is distributed freely to innocent young girls on campus. In San Francisco, under the auspices of a rabbi, the homosexuals hold a formal ball. In Washington, D.C., in the Sheraton Park Hotel, the homosexuals, both male and female, hold an official convention and lobby against any restrictions on their spreading filth. They pick up the White House for freedom to marry each other. Queers do get married and live together in public, and nobody really protests. Women have been wearing pants for such a long time that it is no longer noticed. But now the American Observer newspaper reports that men are taking to long hair, cosmetics, perfume, lipstick, and feminine clothes as high fashion until it's hard to tell males from females anymore among so-called young mods. Finally, the first skirts are appearing on men. The Associated Press tells us on May 22, 1966, that there is a huge million-dollar business in making false eyelashes for U.S. businessmen, not just for queers, but ordinary businessmen. Time magazine for December 9, 1966, describes a Boston opera production including a wild and completely nude sex orgy on stage. Herds of animals are slaughtered and naked men and women run riot. This is taken seriously as art. The police do nothing. United Press International reports that Richmond Professional Institute, with lovely white girls in attendance, has chosen a negress, Beatrice Wynne, as beauty queen in once proud Richmond, Virginia. Again, no protest. Middlesex, England, a white nation even further along on the road to degeneracy than the USA. The District Post for March 25, 1965, presents a photograph of a college play about Christ and the Disciples. Christ is portrayed by a Jamaican Negro, while all the white disciples are shown on their knees before this arrogant black buck posing as Jesus Christ. In Berkeley, California, an anti-Vietnam War committee puts out a booklet telling American youth how to duck military service. The pamphlet, called Brief Notes on Ways and Means of Beating the Draft, lists the following methods for our youth to avoid fighting for their country. 1. Be a conscientious objector, with details on how to do this. 2. Agitate at the induction center, wear anti-war signs, etc. 3. Refuse to sign the oath of loyalty to the USA. 4. Act queer, flick your wrist, hold cigarettes delicately, move like chicks do. 5. Get a fake doctor's note that you are sick by buying the doctor. 6. Have an epileptic fit on the floor with full details on how to act it out. 7. Get a jail record for a lot of misdemeanors. 8. Be nuts. Tell them you're a secret agent for God. 9. Arrive roaring drunk. 10. Arrive high on heroin. 11. Go without a shower for weeks. Stink. Have long hair. Go barefoot. Talk far out. 12. Be a foul up. Do everything wrong. Cause trouble. 13. Be antagonistic. Smoke where it's prohibited. Fight, argue, raise hell, etc. 14. 
be a bedwetter. If they don't believe you, prove it. All of this is being done openly, in violation of the federal laws against sedition, etc. But nobody does anything about it. Can you imagine what would have happened if anybody had tried this when Hitler was the enemy? Nobody stops this sedition. On April 26, 1966, United Press reports that the historic Old South Church in Boston conducted a Sunday worship service in which the congregation frogged in the aisles, as shown by the incredible picture down below. No real protest. A Negro preacher halts traffic in Boston, dares the police to arrest him, and tells the black mob that if he is arrested, they will rock Boston. This gentleman is not arrested. The San Francisco Examiner, June 17, 1966, reports that the United States regularly helps Castro send arms to the communists in Vietnam with which to kill Americans by passing Castro's armed ships through our Panama Canal. Meanwhile, the U.S. Navy guards Castro from Cuban anti-communist patriots trying to recapture their own country and sends Cuban patriots they catch to prison. The New Haven Register, November 29, 1965, reports that American widows and mothers of servicemen killed fighting communism in Vietnam are being harassed all night long with vile phone calls from Reds who gloat over the death of their loved ones. In Los Palos, Palos California, United Press reports that Jack E. Mulkey, superintendent of the poverty war in that area, was fighting poverty by buying tuxedos for Negroes so they can go to dances in style. Associated Press and Reuters report that a chimpanzee named Cindy Lou in the Worcestershire, Worcestershire Zoo near London has astonished the art world with a series of dazzling abstract paintings. A descendant of master painter, Sir Joshua Reynolds reports that these wonderful ape paintings are worth hundreds of and hundreds of dollars each. In an officer's club in Murnau, Germany, according to Time magazine, a major Robert G. Wallace passes $2,000 in bagged checks. When the army seeks to punish him for thus dishonoring his American uniform and for the crime of passing worthless checks, $2,000 apiece, the U.S. Court of Appeals turns him loose saying that since the money was used to gamble, he cannot be held to blame for writing any amount of bad checks. No national outrage. In Cleveland, Philadelphia, and many other cities, police officers are forbidden to interfere with Negroes openly looting stores. For centuries, looting has been dealt with by shooting all looters out of hand. Our leaders do nothing. Time Magazine reports on September 2, 1966, that one of America's top writers, Norman Mailer, the naked and the dead, now concentrates on the bowel. Man's nature, says this Jewish playwright, can be divined by the color, the shape, the size of the movement of his bowel contents. This artist regularly appears on national TV and has his books published. No outraged protest. While Jewish groups have managed to get Christmas carols outlawed in many schools in New Jersey, California, New York, Illinois, and many other states, Negro, Negro groups are actually agitating for Negro Santa Clauses and getting them. The Cleveland Press, December 17, 1966, reports that even they even have a union, the Union of Negro Santa Clauses, 
lobbying for black Santa Clauses in stores. Can you imagine the effect of setting your little toddler on the knee of a black Santa Claus? If the kid cries, the case is no doubt referred to the State Dis- Discrimination Committee and the toddler sent to reform school for being a hater. All over Washington, our top diplomats and dignitaries engaged in drunken orgies of dancing the frog and the watusi. Photos are made of our leaders appearing in sexual poses exactly like those of naked cannibals in Africa. In San Francisco, a Negro named Harry Dedrick runs a shoe shine parlor. He's hired topless white girls to shine Negroes' shoes. A press dispatch on August 9, 1961, reports that a Negro mother of 14 illegitimate children in Newark, New Jersey, blames her plight on a lack of relief money. She told New Jersey State Senator Grossi that, although she had received more than $16,000 in relief money, this amount of money was, no, was so small that she was forced to cohabit with men. No protest. In Berkeley, California, students kidnapped a female dean and hold her hostage overnight while the police and administration do nothing. When the police finally arrest one student, mobs surround the car. They imprison the officers for more than a day and most of a night, using the top of the police car as a platform for speeches blasting the university and police. The prisoners released. Nobody is disciplined in any way for all this hell. Then the same students parade around the university with signs reading, Fuck! and other freedom words. Still no discipline or resistance. In the middle of the United States, we have set up the world's biggest spy and subversion center, the United Nations. The first general secretary of this infamous Trojan horse in our midst was none none other than Alger Hiss. Since convicted of perjury and exposed officially as a Soviet spy, working to destroy the United States of America, while he was a top officer of our State Department and the Secretary General of the United Nations in San Francisco. Not only does nobody protest, but last year, when this convicted traitor spoke at Princeton University, he was cheered by Americans. The Washington Post of November 19, 1966, reports that the Chief Justice of the D.C. Courts has reprimanded police and prosecutors for daring to charge a Negro named Watts with threatening the ple- with threatening the president. At a communist Dubois club rally on the grounds of the Washington Monument, Watts shouted that he would not serve if drafted, and that if he got a rifle in his hands, the first person I'd shoot would be the president. If you or I said that, we'd be gone. This black communist not only housed that threat against our president in our capital, but gets caught with a package of, package of dope on him, and the police are cussed out by the judge for arresting him. Richard Wagner's great opera, Tannhauser, is performed by Beirut in Beirut, Germany, with Venus played by a negress. Walter Jenkins is arrested for soliciting homosexual degeneracy in the men's room of the Washington, D.C. YMCA. Turns out that Jenkins is the closest personal aide to the President of the United States, who, deser- who does everything possible to cover up the arrest. Meanwhile, Jenkins and the President are famous for conducting nude swimming parties in the White House pool, and almost forcing other top U.S. administrators to strip down and swim naked with them. After the hula blue dies down, Jenkins moves from Washington to a few miles from LBJ's ranch in Texas. No mention in the press. 
The Santa Barbara High School puts on the play King Arthur's Round Table. Sir Lancelot, the lover of Queen Guinevere, is played by a six-foot Negro football player. In literally tens of thousands of jobs, white men are fired or passed over for promotion, especially in the federal government, to make jobs available to admittedly incompetent Negroes. Harry Golden, rec Harry Golden recommends $100 billion be given outright to Negroes by white taxpayers. Negro labor leader A. Philip Randolph goes before Congress and demands a $185 billion gift to Negroes. Americans accept this arrogance meekly. Sammy Davis Jr., the Negro Jew entertainer, plays the fastest gun in the West in the Rifleman TV show. When this one-eyed Jewish Negro appears in the Western town, we are shown all the white men running and hiding. Americans swallow this without protest. In Washington, D.C., police corner a Negro rapist in an elevator, stuck between floors with his white female victim still terrified in there with a the black rapist. Before police break in to rescue the white girl and capture the Negro, they have to read the criminal speech about his rights, his privilege of remaining silent, and his right to have a lawyer, for fear he might shout something incriminating. Madness! And nobody cares enough to stop it. All over the country, although it is not being reported except in isolated incidents, Negroes are using a new robbery technique. Fifteen or twenty tough Negro males walk into a small store and, at any given signal, run out with armful of, armfuls of goods. Nothing much can be done about it since they are black. Arrogant traders parade through American streets burning American flags and flying enemy Viet Cong flags, the flags under which enemy troops are now killing American boys. I try to get the American Legion, veterans of foreign wars, the Birchers, the Klan, anybody, to help stop this unspeakable outrage. Nobody will do a thing except talk about it. So why, George Lincoln Rockwell, go out and tear down the first enemy flags in the District of Columbia, and I go to jail for it. My brave lads in Los Angeles, Seattle, Dallas, New York, everywhere, keep tearing down the commie red flags and going to jail. So the American Legion passes resolutions condemning us as tied in with the communists. So do the Birchers. Meanwhile, peace marchers sell and wear rings made from metal of American airplanes in which our sons and brothers died over in Vietnam. Nobody protests. In San Francisco, firemen go into the tinderbox Hunter's Point Negro section are regularly beaten, stoned, and shot at. The firemen can, go, can get no protection from cowardly politicians and picket San Francisco City Hall demanding protection. They get none. In Boston... Negro schools are so dangerous the Board of Education can't get any teachers to go in among these vicious blacks, so they offer a $1,000 bonus for teachers to face the razors, knives, rape, and filth. Combat pay, it is called in the press. But it is not enough. Teachers still bulk at braving the black hell. Washington, D.C. once had the best schools in the nation, and it desegregated. Now the schools are overwhelmingly black after almost all the whites moved to the suburbs. So the D.C. schools have become among the worst in the country, so bad that, that the race mixers who ruin them now claim that children attending them are deprived. Police officers have to be stationed in the halls of these Negro schools. The rooms and halls smell of urine, windows are all smashed out every year, 
and it is almost impossible to get good teachers to put up with the, the attacks and abuse heaped on them by, by black pupils. The government builds tremendous multi-million dollar slum clearance modern apartment buildings and turns them over to Negroes almost free. The fine new buildings probably become vile slums with elevators unsafe and often inoperative from all the Negro urine, which literally shorts out the wires and rots the cables and flooring. Washington, D.C. papers run advertisements for the new Watergate apartments, which boast that these new apartments have closed-circuit TV to guard all passageways, electrified fences, armed guards at all entrances, and the rest of the things common to a prison. Negro crime is so rampant in the capital of the United States that a congressman is stabbed in his offices by a black savage. A congressman's secretary is stabbed as she kneels in prayer in the church. Women in D.C. office buildings must use the ladies' room only in pairs because the blacks lie in wait in restrooms for unwary, helpless women alone. The Supreme Court of the U.S. provides its secretaries with armed escorts to the women inside its buildings. High school girls coming to visit their nation's capital in the spring are regularly ravished by sex-crazy black bucks and even the white schoolboys are now victim of gangs of black teenagers who shake them down for money, watches, and other valuables. Nobody dares point out that this is Negro crime. Everybody deplores the crime wave, but it's hate to identify the black criminals who commit 85% of serious crimes, FBI reports. Tens of thousands of these blacks, most of them living on welfare provided by hardworking white people, have openly organized what they openly call a black revolution, in which they violently attack our cities, policemen, firemen, and anybody who is white. They scream, burn, baby, burn, and loot millions of dollars of goods from stores right under the noses of our policemen, who are usually ordered by politicians to do nothing. And they boast that if we don't give them what they want, they will tear down everything Western civilization stands for, as Stokely Carmichael puts it. There is no real resistance. In fact, at colleges, Carmichael gets standing ovations from white students for his Get Whitey speeches. On almost all magazine stands these days, you can buy dozens of paperback books and magazines devoted to the most disgusting pornography, depravity, and homosexuality, emphasizing enlarged male genitals and showing nude men caressing each other. Negro from the Watts section of, the, of Los Angeles wins an art prize with a sculpture consi- consisting of the broken window of an automobile, an old generator, a busted oil can, and some odd dirty junk all welded together. Another great sculptor, Lipschitz, wins another art prize and has his work exhibited in the White House. On October 26, 1965, two Chicago police officers are attacked by two Puerto Ricans. To quote the UPI dispatch of March 8, 1966, the officers encountered Suarez and Rodriguez in an alley where they said Suarez was waving a broken beer bottle. They pulled their service revolvers, identified themselves as policemen, and ordered Suarez to drop the bottle. Instead, Suarez, Suarez slashed officer to Sutter in the face. He was scarred for life. When the case went to trial before Negro Judge Layton, the judge freed the two colored citizens and cussed out the cops. 
The police officer has no business to put a gun and attack a citizen, said the judge. What is a citizen supposed to do when he is approached by two officers with a gun? It's not a crime to walk down the street with a broken beer bottle. Nothing is done. The Virginia Sun-Times, for March 9, 1965, reports that a private virtual of Reno, Nevada, conducted a lie-in against the U.S. The US Army in the guardhouse. Virtual claimed the right to get out of the guardhouse and the army, and to win the right, and to win the right, he refused to eat, wear a uniform, drill, or do anything except lie in his sack. The army capitulated to this lion and discharged Virgil as he demanded. In Leb's restaurant in Atlanta, Negroes invaded the restaurant, urinated on the tables, and defecated on the floors and chairs. None of these people were arrested. An exhibition of modern art features a gigantic statue of a female called She. The statue lies on its back with the breasts touching the ceiling of the exhibition hall and its legs spread wide. Visitors enter and leave through a tremendous aperture between the legs. Crucified chickens, naked sex orgies on stage, bowel movement prophets, businessmen wearing lipstick and false eyelashes. As painful as it has been for me, I have steeled myself to set down these almost unbelievable, exa- unbelievable samples of rot and insanity infecting our civilization. But the real depth of the problem cannot be gauged by these mere symptoms of degeneracy. To plumb the death of our plunge toward hell, one must examine the less sensational course of our everyday affairs and the astounding way we tolerate growing horror in our daily lives. Take a look at what you put up with every day of the year, what millions and millions of us meekly tolerate. Just a few generations ago, our forefathers fought a desperate war against the mightiest power on earth, the British Army and Navy, over relatively minor taxes on tea and some stamps required on legal documents. They fought a bloody war for the right to keep to help set those small taxes. Today, not only do we have literally thousands of different taxes on stamps, tea, and everything else, but they have stolen our money too, literally. They've done it so gradually that we have actually allowed ourselves to be robbed, just as surely as if it were done by bandits with pistols. Our grandfathers could guard against future insecurity by saving up actual gold coins. Many young people today have never seen a gold coin. They don't miss what they have never experienced. And too few of the rest of us stop to think about it at all, so we never remind them. Franklin D. Roosevelt started the robbery by decreeing that you can't have any gold. Foreigners can get all the U.S. gold they want, but not you. In the hysteria of a depression, people let Roosevelt and his gang take away every last gold coin we had. It's literally illegal for you to own them. People tolerated this outrage because, we were told, the gold was held in safekeeping for us at Fort Knox. It said, right on our paper money, that it was backed by that gold at Fort Knox. My older readers may remember the gold certificates, which were orange colored instead of green and redeemable in solid gold. Then, after the people had become accustomed to the idea of not being allowed to have their gold, but only the certificates standing for that gold, they went a step further. They withdrew the gold certificates. They took away the gold backing for our paper money and replaced it with silver certificates. People went along with this too, 
since they felt they could always fall back on the solid silver behind the paper. Then, in 1964, the thieves moved ahead to step three. They changed the paper money again and took away even the promise to pay for the paper and silver. Take a look at the paper money in your pocket. Unless it is a rarity, it no longer says silver certificate, as it did only a few years ago. Now it just says Federal Reserve Note. And what does that mean? Literally nothing. You can get neither gold nor silver coin for the paper. But still, there was actual silver in the pockets of Americans. Dimes, quarters, half dollars, and silver cartwheels. We still had something of real value. Finally, in 1965, they took the last step and removed the silver from the coinage. Now the coins in your pocket are as worthless as the paper. Just slugs. And all this time, foreigners can do can and do drain your gold. The gold our ancestors sweat and died to win for America. Foreigners take billions of dollars worth of gold in periods of weeks. As I dictate these words, foreigners have the right to call more of our remaining gold at Fort Knox than is available, leaving you and your country penniless. Our great-great-granddaddies fought and won a bloody war over pennies and taxes on tea and stamps. Yet the present generation doesn't make any effective protest even when it is robbed by its government and given worthless paper and slugs for its gold while the gold is being hauled out of the country by arrogant foreigners who are getting it free as foreign aid. Meanwhile, even the paper money and credit we still have left is taxed at a higher rate, an average of more than 25% total of all taxes, than anything ever known in history under a supposedly free government. Most Americans meekly work about two days out of every week, not to take care of themselves and their dear ones, or even to help our nation, but to send wheat, food, machinery, and our services to communists, cannibals, and criminal gangsters posing as statesmen in Africa, Haiti, Asia, India, etc., and loafing Negroes in America. Much of what we send to India, for instance, is devoured by millions of sacred cows and rats. Well, there are hungry Americans right here at home. Never in history has a great people so meekly submitted, submitted to outrageous robbery and payment of tribute to its enemies. Millions of fine American young people who would like to get married and should be able to can't because they can't afford it. So while they work to save enough money to have good American kids, their money is taken in taxes and in gold to enable, enable foreigners and blacks in Africa and here to have swarms of black kids on our money, on foreign aid and welfare. Instead of having a sweet little white American baby, American couples must work hard to produce African kids, Asian kids, and kids of nations which openly hate us, and millions of illegitimate black babies living on welfare here in America. Meanwhile, take a ride out on a main road near any big city in what are called the rush hours. You can't move. You sit, bumper to bumper, jammed in by the enormous crush of people. We are almost swamped with people, polluting the air with the cars and manufacturing for too many people, polluting the water with the flood of sewage from too many people, jamming every road, every public and private facility with too many people. There are such a hellish number more people on the way that even the liberals and the United Nations experts cringe. They babble about birth control. But while we already suffer from such a logjam of population 
and limit our own numbers by birth control, our leaders are regularly letting down the bars for more and more immigration. We have re recently gone all the way in this insanity and opened up the country to the endless millions and millions and millions from teeming Asia and Africa. If you live in or near a big city, is it necessary for me to inform you of what has been done to our beautiful parks? New York Central Park is perhaps the most horrifying example in America. This is refreshing. This refreshing patch of green in the dingy stone canyons of Manhattan was once a haven for nature-starved humanity toiling and living in the depressing artificiality of a great city. But then came the love mongers with their equality propaganda and the resulting flood of savage Africans from Harlem. Today, no amount of policing can make Central Park safe for honest citizens, especially women. The park has been almost formally given up to the black terror, to African savagery. It is the same in all the big cities. In Chicago, they have had to rip up the shrubbery and the many small parks scattered throughout the city because the bushes were used by lurking blacks to attack white passers-by, especially women. Nor is it only the city parks which have been abandoned to the, to the spawn of the jungle by those who created them. The streets of America, even in small towns, have become the hunting grounds for growing swarms of criminals, almost all of them black. In the face of this danger, the obvious, tried and true methods by which police once kept the streets safe have been abandoned, and the police handcuffed with a crazy pattern of restrictions so that you are no longer able to depend on police to protect you. Many policemen, understandably, would rather look the other way than take the chance of jail or losing their job for stopping a black criminal and then being accused of police brutality or starting a riot. If this reader is a young man, he personally faces a horror none of us in previous generations ever had to face. In all wars before Korea and Vietnam, our leaders at least tried to win. They didn't risk our lives without letting us use every weapon we had to defend ourselves and beat the enemy. But as I dictate these lines, young, Americans, young American boys, armed only with a pistol and a flashlight, are being sent down filthy tunnels after the deadly Viet Cong guerrillas. All that would be necessary to save the lives of many of these kids would be to squirt tear gas down these holes, forcing the red rats out. But since world opinion would raise a hue and cry about even tear gas, we send those kids down there in the darkened death for nothing. Tear gas is reserved only for use on our own people, such as college girls at Oxford, Mississippi. Our, our leaders use bayonets and gas on white girls resisting black invasion, but won't let American fighting men use that same tear gas on our deadly communist enemies in Vietnam. Nobody has even mentioned this to my knowledge. And in spite of the fuss made about our boys as veterans, they are abandoned the moment they apply for employment with their own government in favor of Africans all over America in post offices, federal installations and federal funded projects. White men, even veterans are being discriminated against in favor of Negroes. Mothers with small children are being forced to put helpless white kids on buses and ship them miles across town to black schools where their white girls will be fondled and attacked by animalistic Negro boys and little white boys will be beaten and shaken down by these same African animals. Literally thousands of the blacks, man and boy, are heavily armed and openly drilling for war against us. War they have already been practicing in dozens of cities. 
during which they have overcome the entire police departments of such cities as Chicago, Cleveland, Los Angeles, etc., so that the National Guard had to be called out. In the face of this open insurrection by heavenly armed black armies, which have been able to destroy police protection, our leaders are demanding that we be disarmed. They want to take away or register our guns so they can be seized at a moment's notice by Negro police officers. Nobody disarmed the bloodthirsty Black Panthers who invaded the California legislature, armed with automatic weapons, shotguns, and revolvers. Such, example, such examples of depravity and, and insanity could be multiplied indefinitely. My files bulge with thousands more documented items such as the foregoing. But it should not be necessary. The pattern should be clear to all those who are not determined to be stubbornly blind. It is not these crazy facts themselves which are horrifying. There have always been nuts and criminals and wickedness, treason, and depravity. The difference between all previous times and our times is that the sort of monstrous insanity I have reported causes no particular outrage or indignation. These mad and vile things are accepted by most Americans and the rest of the world. In fact, many of them are points of pride. Nobody has a fit when a Negro gathers our young girls up for a sexual freedom league and holds naked interracial sex orgies in Berkeley, California. No, that is a sign of freedom and progress today. Nobody d demands impeachment was when the president's top personal aide of many years turns out to be a filthy degenerate and the president sends Abe Fortas around to hush up the story. Even when it is discovered, this is not the first time. Instead, the degenerate moves near the president's home in Austin, Texas, which isn't even reported, and the president wins a national election by a landslide. The paintings of apes and the sculptures of madmen and criminals are pushed at us at, as art, and those who deny that such depravity is art are cursed and banished from decent society as bigots, squares, and Philistines. Other civilizations before us have gone down to collapse and death. But always before they fell, they have died of senility, of, of age, weariness, and centuries of decline. White Western civilization is not old in terms of the millions of years of human existence. It is young, especially in America, and should be vigorous, healthy, and aggressive. Instead, it is mortally sick, weak, feeble, feeble mad, and depraved. It's dying. Even Rome during its decline, never reached the depths to which America has already sunk. If that sounds hard to believe, just try to imagine the following. Picture the pomp and splendor of a Roman triumph for a returning general at the head of his legions. The blaring trumpets, the horses and chariot wheels clattering on the cobblestones, the roar of the Roman crowd, the senators and white togas waiting in their dignity on the steps of the imperial palace, the marching armored legions, Helmets and swords flashing in the sun. Scarlet banners flying from their eagle standards. Now, into the midst of this scene, picture a mob of black Ethiopian slaves swarming from the gutter over the palace steps shouting, Fuck Caesar! Carrying signs, smash Roman power, and singing, We shall overcome. Can you imagine Rome, at its worst, ever tolerating this outrage? But wait, there's more. The trumpets blare and the vast crowd waits for Caesar himself to appear on the balcony, high up in the magnificent palace. 
the great man appears. He raises his hand to still the, the roars of the crowd. The crowd falls silent, and mighty Caesar speaks. Caesar shouts the battle cry of the Ethiopians. We shall overcome. The Ethiopian blacks are still mobbing the steps below the balcony, shouting, Fuck Caesar! Suddenly, some members of the Roman crowd leap forward and bash the Ethiopians. Caesar, Caesar immediately orders the Roman citizens seized and executed, and invites the black Ethiopians up to the palace so he can apologize over tea and cakes. While Caesar is serving tea and cakes to the Ethiopians, they stage a sit-in in the palace, refusing to leave all night finally urinating on the marble stairs. Is it necessary to draw the picture to the last line? Can any American forget the scene in the joint session of our Congress in 1965 when our president shouted the slogan of the black terrorist and revolutionist, we shall overcome, and, robed, and our robed Supreme Court rose and applauded? Or when the Negroes held a mass urination in the streets of Montgomery, Alabama, did any nation ever sink so low? Where in the history of all peoples for all time will you find an equal for the situation in America where our leaders openly ally themselves with our enemies and persecute patriots? Where our attorney general gets down on his knees begging these black revolutionists to leave his office? How come? Why? What's happened to our people? It is not surprising that there are evil forces at work. That has been the case since history began. But in our time, the very victims of the evil are the chief promoters of the evil itself. Our leaders are for the barbarians and against us. Somehow, our people have been brought to the point where the arrogant Khrushchev could boast rightly that Americans would soon fall because we have become too liberal to fight. It is not the evil itself which is horrifying about our times. It is the way we not only tolerate evil, but have made a cult of positively worshipping weakness, depravity, rottenness, and evil itself. It is not the death rattle in the throat of Western civilization which is surprising. It is the fact that millions of Americans believe that the death rattle is a beautiful song. To many Americans, too many Americans are doing everything possible to hasten the death of our civilization, to welcome inferior barbarians who openly organize to murder and destroy our kind forever, all, all in the name of brotherhood and freedom. Why, and what can be done about it? I have written this book to seek the answer. And on we go. To chapter 2. Spiritual Syphilis The guy at the door of Nazi headquarters was the living embodiment of the national suicide I have set forth in Chapter 1. He seemed young, but you couldn't be sure because he was wearing a matted red beard. He wasn't wearing clothes, just a raggedy blanket and sandals. Shades, sunglasses, covered his eyes. Unkempt hair covered much of the rest of his face. Our duty officer, sharply uniformed in well-pressed khakis, jump boots, and sidearm just stood there looking, bug-eyed in amazement. The apparition, his head sort of bobbing and rolling to some rhythm while he snapped his fingers, looked the duty officer up and down. What's with you Nazi cats, he said. The duty officer stared. Say, man, will that thing shoot? The man in the blanket tried again, pointing a finger with inch-long dirty nails at the officer's forty-five. 
Certainly, replied the duty officer, finally getting over his first shock. What can we do for you? I want to join, man. Like I want to be a Nazi. Want to gas me a Jew. I want to sign up. Where's this Rockwell cat? I was in a back room printing. I had to do much of it myself back then. I heard all this going on. Although I didn't like to let visitors see me covered with printer's ink, couldn't resist coming out to see what was at the door. He wants to join, sir, the duty officer said to me, still flabbergasted. Couldn't resist talking to this thing from outer space. I have often found that I learn most, not from books and literature, but from people and events themselves. And this guy looked like a whole encyclopedia of everything degenerate. I invited him in. We talked. He couldn't stay still, but kept moving around the room, seeming to float a few inches above the floor. I later learned that he was on pills and narcotics. After an hour or so of talking, he began to change a bit. He appeared unsure of himself in the presence of something he'd never experienced before. Men who were sure of themselves and had a purpose. A look of unbelieving wonder came over his blue eyes, even through the shades as I talked to him of what we really were and why we had given up everything of fun in life to fight for our nation and white race. Little by little, I began to get this story out of him. He was only 17 years old and had lived an entire lifetime. He'd done everything, tried all kicks, and was already bored to death with an empty life. He'd made a mistress out of his art teacher. He'd run a den of degeneracy and debauchery called Mule's Pad, where the local beats and wild crowds did anything, including enjoy dope. He'd shot a man, gotten off, lived as fast and hard as he could until finally contemplated suicide and utter despair of any of finding anything worth doing anymore. All of this at 17. Before he committed suicide, he told me, he decided to come to see the Nazi cats, figuring it might be one last kick. What he found, unexpectedly, was that every human being needs to survive this life. What this hu- what what he found, unexpectedly, was what every human being needs to survive this life. A purpose. Something which gives life more meaning than a constant search for more pleasure and kicks. He actually convinced me he wanted to try to be a stormtrooper. It's a matter of policy. Whenever I hear that, as I do every day, I do all I can to discourage the applicant. We want no dabblers, but dedicated, fanatical fighters who will stick through hell itself. With this crazy character, I went even further. I made fun of him. I told him he'd never make it, that we'd run him off the first day. He rose to the challenge. You name it, and I'll make it, he said. Strangely, I could sense a fiercely burning will behind his words. I told him he couldn't come up to try life as a Nazi stormtrooper until he was 18. He left, vowing to return in a few months. He did return, without the beating to get up. He turned out to be a blonde, young Viking built for combat. We poured it to him. There was no place left inside for him to sleep, so he was assigned to a wrecked car out back. It was still winter and cold, but the kids moved into the wreck. But the kid moved into the wrecked car with a couple of blankets. We put him to work cleaning the toilets and yard. And actually, I'm going to have to stop there because I can only do a an hour at a time. I just found out, so I will pick up there in the future. Uh, Probably within the next day, I kind of just want to get caught up as quickly as possible. Um, And then uh, we'll just go on from there. Okay, guys. Uh, Again, this uh, 
all this is coming from um, American Defense Skinheads. Uh, contact us at nationalascension at protonmail.com. And uh, until next time, uh, yeah, until next time, uh, stay safe, keep your mind strong, and uh, body fit.